The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Halloween is without a doubt considered the spookiest time of year. Daylight hours get shorter and dark nights get longer. With the chill in the air and an eeriness in the wind, it's inevitable. We begin to see skeletons, spiderwebs, and witches popping up and adorning porches and front lawns. It's the time of year when we binge watch all of the horror classics, sure to induce a good jump scare. Like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. There are also those other classics that take us to a much darker place, like Rosemary's Baby and The Omen, where we question the existence of demons. For one young man in the town of Manteca, California, there came a time where he didn't just question the existence of demons, he believed he was actually seeing them. Join me now as we take a look at the shocking Halloween murder of Kathleen McGee, where you'll hear how one man's visions of demons became all too real and all too deadly. Throughout our lives, we've all had those moments where we experience a horrible thought or spooky premonition. For instance, where does your mind go when a loved one is running 15 minutes late, or when you haven't been able to get in touch with a friend for days? What's your first thought when an unknown number calls in the middle of the night? It's not uncommon for our minds to immediately race, considering the worst possible scenarios. You might be relieved to hear these sorts of disturbing and paranoid thoughts are completely normal to have. From time to time, and for most of us, we're able to easily rid our minds of these bad thoughts through a process called thought stopping, which is just as simple as it sounds. Our brains recognize the uncomfortable path the bad thoughts are leading us down, as well as their absurd improbability, and we deliberately stop those thoughts dead in their tracks, considering more plausible, more comforting explanations, snapping us back into rationality ultimately leaving us with the uneasy feeling that our mind even went there in the first place. But what happens the one time those thoughts turn out to be true? Halloween is a special time for the town of Manteca. Nicknamed the family city, Manteca lies just an hour east of San Francisco in California's Central Valley. Originally a farming community, Manteca's population boomed over the past several decades, becoming a virtual suburb of the increasingly unaffordable Bay Area. It's a place where growing families feel safe and thrive, while many parents make the long commutes to the big city each day for work. In the fall, the weather cools in Manteca from the summer's oppressive heat to a perfect average high of 75 degrees. Harvest season 
means a friendly rivalry with the nearby town of Half Moon Bay for the title of pumpkin capital of the world. Although Half Moon Bay always grows the biggest pumpkins, Manteca proudly grows the most, with nearly 80% of all California pumpkins coming from the surrounding Manteca fields. Leading up to Halloween, Manteca homes are always decorated for the season as children go about putting final touches on their costumes for trick-or-treating. The day before Halloween in 2011, 55-year-old Kathleen McGee was busy in her kitchen, happily preparing a big batch of jambalaya for a potluck dinner the following day. Kathleen had spent the last decade living in Manteca with her husband and their four children. With her kids now all grown up, and her husband Tom frequently away on international business trips, Kathleen needed to find a new way to keep herself busy. Although she'd always been a steady churchgoer, she now had the time to get more involved, which included volunteering for a local advocacy group for victims of abuse. As Kathleen was busy preparing the Cajun dish, she suddenly realized she couldn't figure out how to get the rice cooker working. Her son Colin had left it behind years ago when he moved out on his own. She knew if there was one person who'd be able to help her get it running, it would be him. So she tried calling him for instructions. After leaving a message, Colin called her back around 4 p.m. And soon enough, the smell of steamed rice and Cajun spices began filling the room. Earlier that morning, she'd attended church with her oldest son Justin. And now that the jambalaya was fully underway, she was expecting a phone call any minute from her youngest child, her daughter Caitlin. Having graduated with her master's degree a month prior, Caitlin had moved back in with mom and dad temporarily so she could focus on preparing for upcoming wedding in December. It was a special time for Kathleen, spending all the extra time with her daughter, shopping for a wedding dress, excitedly helping her plan for the big day. It was exactly the kind of quality time mothers dream of spending with their daughters one day. Over that particular weekend, Caitlin had been away at a church retreat with one of her best friends and was returning that evening. She'd carpooled to the retreat and needed her mom to pick her up in the nearby city of Stockton, about 25 minutes away. Caitlin was to call Kathleen when she was about an hour away, to give her enough warning to meet her in time in Stockton. Taking a break from the kitchen, Kathleen walked into her bedroom to grab her car keys in preparation for Caitlin's call. But when she turned back around, she saw something that stopped her in her tracks. There in the doorway was a man wearing a Halloween mask, holding a kitchen knife. At about 5 p.m., the landline at the McGee's residence started ringing. It was Caitlin calling her mother, but the phone just rang and rang. Kathleen never picked up. When no one answered the phone, Caitlin left a message on the machine, letting her mother know she'd be in Stockton by 6 p.m. After trying her mother's cell, again with no answer, she got a call a minute later. But it wasn't her mother. It was Caitlin's older brother, Dawson. He said he was just calling to see how she was. Immediately, it caught Caitlin off guard. Dawson never called her, just to chat. 
Dawson was the third child in the McGee family, and at 26, he was just a year older than Caitlin. Among his three siblings, who were perpetual overachievers, Dawson always remained a bit of a black sheep in the family. Like his sister, Dawson was living at home with his parents, except his situation didn't appear to be as temporary as Caitlin's. Despite being very intelligent, finishing high school early, and excelling as a gifted musician, Dawson never really seemed to get his feet on the ground. He graduated from the University of the Pacific in 2009 as a music major. But like many millennials who graduated in the wake of the global financial crisis and the Great Recession, he struggled finding a job, let alone one using his degree. The best he could do was finding a part-time gig teaching music at a local elementary school. A job, for whatever reason, didn't pan out for very long. Since then, Dawson remained perpetually underemployed, unfulfilled, and eventually, he moved back home to live with his parents. As Caitlin and Dawson chatted on the phone, she asked if he happened to be at home. She told him she was depending on their mother for a ride and hadn't been able to get in touch with her. Dawson insisted he wasn't and didn't know how to get a hold of her either. He then informed Caitlin that the home phone hadn't been working properly lately and he was pretty sure their mom had been having cell phone problems too. About an hour after their conversation, Caitlin arrived in Stockton where she made several more failed attempts to contact her mother. After still hearing no word from her, Caitlin received another call from Dawson. He told Caitlin that their mother had been feeling extremely tired that day and offered to come pick her up himself. When Dawson met Caitlin around 6.30, he was in a cheerful mood, in addition to the chatty phone call earlier. This kind of behavior was also out of the ordinary for a brother. Usually Dawson's demeanor was dark, brooding, and quiet, but tonight he seemed in good spirits. In fact, he was more chipper and social than she'd seen him in years. Until that day, Dawson had barely spoken a word to Caitlin at all, even since moving into the same house. As they were driving, Dawson asked if Caitlin would mind tagging along for some errands, and she happily agreed. But instead of just doing some quick local shopping, Dawson hopped onto the freeway and headed north towards Sacramento, nearly an hour in the wrong direction. The reason for the trip? So Dawson could buy some marijuana from his dealer. Strangely, for a trip Dawson had made several times before, he didn't seem to know where he was going, driving up and down the same streets over and over again, looking for the right house. After spending nearly an hour driving around, Dawson finally parked, met his dealer, and vomited while he was walking back to the car. By the time the siblings finally returned home, after nearly three and a half hours, it was already 11 p.m. When they got inside, Dawson made a special point to tell Caitlin their mother was already asleep and that she shouldn't be bothered. It wouldn't be very long before Caitlin would fully come to understand why Dawson had been so eager to keep her away from the house until well after his mother's usual bedtime. The next morning was Halloween. When Caitlin woke up, she was immediately reminded again by Dawson 
not to bother their mother. He claimed he'd seen her earlier that morning, and she'd been planning to spend the whole day in bed. She was exhausted, he said, perhaps from the low-calorie diet she'd recently started. At any rate, she needed time to rest and was not to be bothered. But something just wasn't sitting right in Caitlin's gut about Dawson's story. She wasn't about to let her mom lay in bed all day feeling sick without checking on her. When Dawson finally stepped out of the house, Caitlin decided to knock on her mother's bedroom door, but she got no response. So she tried opening the door, but it was locked. This time, Caitlin knocked a little bit louder, calling out her mother's name, but there was still no answer. At that point, Caitlin became slightly concerned and went outside to see if she could see her mom through her bedroom window, but the curtains were drawn. It was then Caitlin began thinking something was terribly wrong. But what do we do when we start thinking about the possible worst-case scenarios? We stop those thoughts, convincing ourselves not to be paranoid. We shake our heads and tell ourselves to get real. After all, Dawson had just seen Kathleen that morning. It was easier to believe that Kathleen just wasn't feeling well and had simply gone back to sleep. And besides, Caitlin had no real reason not to believe Dawson. Sure, he was a handful and a bit troubled, but he was, after all, her brother. That's when Caitlin stopped her bad thoughts, pushing them to the back of her mind, allowing her to continue on with her day, which included running more errands with Dawson. After spending the morning together, the siblings parted ways around lunchtime. But when Caitlin came home in the late afternoon, she found the house empty and her mother's bedroom door disturbingly still locked. Again, she knocked on the door, calling out to her mother louder and louder until it was overwhelmingly obvious that her initial gut instinct had been right. Something was indeed very wrong. When the bad thoughts returned, Caitlin knew she wasn't being paranoid. Had her mom had some sort of medical emergency? Concerned and desperate, Caitlin called her oldest brother, Justin, who told her to call 911 right away. She also tried calling Dawson, but he wasn't answering. When emergency responders arrived at the house, they immediately broke the lock on the bedroom door, and there on the floor was a scene straight out of a Hollywood slasher film. This wasn't a medical emergency. It was the worst case scenario, a violent, brutal homicide. After finding Kathleen unresponsive, police were immediately dispatched to the scene. Detective Wayne Miller was just getting ready to take his kids trick-or-treating when he got the call. Inside the McGee household, Detective Miller found Kathleen lying on her bedroom floor with her car keys next to her hand. She'd been brutally stabbed. Ten times in the chest, stomach, and neck. Eight of the wounds, just by themselves, would have each been independently fatal. The manner of the stabbing showed clear evidence of excessive rage. Her wounds were so violent in their nature. The medical examiner even used the word overkill to describe them. Beyond the sheer brutality of the stab wounds, there was even more evidence to suggest the motivation for Kathleen's murder was personal. Most notably, 
There was no indication of forced entry, and nothing in the house seemed to be broken, stolen, or missing. Even the inside of Kathleen's bedroom was pristine, undisturbed by anything. Determined to put the pieces of the puzzle together as quickly as possible, police took Caitlin to the station for an interview. After hearing her version of events, it became obvious who detectives needed to speak to next. Dawson, the only person who was known to have been at the McGee residence with Kathleen that weekend. But nobody knew where he was, and Dawson wasn't answering his phone. At the very least, Dawson would have valuable information that could help police, being the last known person to see her alive. But as police continued questioning the family, examining the crime scene, and learning more and more about Kathleen's youngest son, Dawson began to look very suspicious. Soon Dawson went from just being a potential witness to now their main suspect, and he was AWOL. But what exactly were police discovering about Dawson as they spoke to his family, looking around the house and reading the pages of his journal? Dawson's parents met and fell in love during college in the Bay Area. After getting married, the couple moved to Chicago so Thomas could further his education. It wasn't long until the McGee's young marriage transformed into a young family, with their first child Justin being born. After their second son Colin arrived, Kathleen and Thomas decided it was best to move their family back to the Bay Area, where Thomas could make more money working in international business. Soon the McGee family had their third son, Dawson, in 1985, and their daughter Caitlin a year later. Motherhood came naturally to Kathleen, maternal, sweet, and extraordinarily dedicated. After becoming a full-time stay-at-home mom, Kathleen homeschooled their children throughout their early childhood educations, and the kids seemed to thrive academically in that environment, all except for Dawson, that is. With the other children, Kathleen had no problem getting them focused or interested in their schoolwork, but for Dawson, it was different. He struggled and always seemed to lag behind. It wasn't until he was diagnosed with ADHD that Kathleen understood why. While Dawson's parents wrestled over the decision to medicate him for his condition, Dawson discovered something. Music. For the first time, Dawson had something he could focus on, thrive on, something that resonated with him emotionally, intellectually, and creatively. And he actually happened to be quite good at it too. By the time Dawson and Caitlin eventually were enrolled in public school, it became obvious that their early homeschooling years had given them an academic advantage over their peers. Dawson finished high school a full semester early, while Caitlin finished a full year ahead of schedule with a 4.29 GPA. Both siblings graduated high school together at the same ceremony in May 2004. Among his college peers, Dawson was known as personable, interactive, and generally a happy guy. However, things began to change as he neared graduation in 2009. That's when family and friends began to notice a decline in Dawson's overall attitude and mental health. After graduating and struggling to find a decent paying job, Dawson's mental state continued deteriorating to the point he moved back in with his parents. 
As an empty nester, Kathleen couldn't help but dote on Dawson, catering to his every need, doing whatever she could to help her son get back to his former self. In 2010, Dawson saw a psychiatrist after complaining of excessive anxiety and experiencing hallucinations. After being diagnosed with an undisclosed psychotic disorder, he was placed on antipsychotic medications. Around that time, Dawson also started watching horror films obsessively, and he wasn't just watching the movies. He started dressing like the villains, even wearing coveralls and a Michael Myers Halloween mask around the house and in public. Dawson also began self-medicating with marijuana. Even though the visions and hallucinations seemed to get worse the more he smoked, it became a regular occurrence. It was during that time Dawson also began keeping a journal where he chronicled his hallucinations, which were almost all entirely centered around religious themes, angels and demons, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But according to the journal, as the weeks progressed, the visions became darker and darker, becoming increasingly realistic and more frightening. One psychologist who later examined Dawson's journal revealed that Dawson seemed to have truly believed he wasn't just seeing demons, he believed he was being hunted by them. Evidence of these terrifying visions wasn't just relegated on the pages of his journal either. Even his friends witnessed the effect Dawson's hallucinations were having on him. On one occasion, in the middle of the night, Dawson ran over to one of his friend's house wearing only his pajamas. He was frantic, terrified, and visibly upset, claiming demons were chasing him and attacking him. As he confided in his friend, he seemed to be having conversations with someone or something that no one else could see. As Dawson continued to withdraw deeper into his own mind, he became increasingly antisocial, distancing himself from his friends, becoming more and more dependent on Kathleen to take care of him. Soon she was cooking for him, cleaning up after him, and even doing all his laundry. But not everyone was convinced Dawson was as disturbed as he was making himself out to be. Those closest to him, including his siblings and his father, began feeling as though Dawson was taking advantage of Kathleen. He'd been so needy growing up, and his propensity to need more and more attention from his mother had become a lifelong trait. To them, it seemed, Dawson was just playing up his condition so people, including his mother, would feel sorry for him. According to the McGee's oldest son, Justin, Kathleen was the type of woman who poured her life into others, always giving always generous. Recently, Kathleen had become a caregiver to her own brother, who had passed away from Parkinson's disease, as well as her sister, who died of a brain tumor. And after the deaths of her two siblings, Kathleen turned the same love, devotion, and care onto her son Dawson boundlessly. It was easy for someone with this kind of nurturing nature to be taken advantage of if they didn't assert boundaries, but this would be something Kathleen would eventually learn how to do after volunteering with the advocacy group for victims of abuse in 2011. Like everything Kathleen involved herself in, she'd thrown herself into her new role volunteering, but during her training, 
She began absorbing the same material she was teaching, which included teaching survivors to realize when they were being taken advantage of by loved ones. She was also learning to identify the fine line between being an advocate and being an enabler. Between her family's increasingly disapproval of Dawson's behavior and the lessons she was learning from her victim's advocacy training, it began to dawn on Kathleen that perhaps she wasn't helping Dawson by coddling him and giving in to his every need. Perhaps Dawson needed a slightly firmer stance from her. Kathleen's newfound assertiveness was gradual. She'd always taken on the peacemaker role in the family, but now she was beginning to stand up for herself, and it reached a boiling point in April of 2011 when the cops were called to the house because of a disturbance. When police arrived, they discovered the disturbance was a result of Dawson insisting his father couldn't kick him out of the house without filing a legal eviction notice. The officers politely explained to Dawson that it was well within Thomas's rights to ask him to leave without an official legal notice. He also explained it was perfectly acceptable for his parents to ask him to carry his own weight around the house. And then something strange happened. Kathleen agreed with her husband against Dawson. It might seem like a simple thing, but inside the McGee household, Kathleen's decision to side with anyone against Dawson was a tectonic shift. After the incident, Dawson's behavior changed even more dramatically when he suddenly developed a litany of odd physical idiosyncrasies, shaking, stuttering, as well as an inability or unwillingness to look at the person he was talking to. It seemed as if Dawson had spontaneously developed the same Parkinson's symptoms he had witnessed in his dying uncle. Interestingly, the dramatic changes all seemed to happen overnight. But the family also noticed something else. These symptoms came and went randomly, like he could turn them on or off at the flick of a switch. Was Dawson playing up a character in order to garner sympathy or attention from his mother? Or was Dawson truly suffering from a psychotic disorder that was completely out of his control? A disorder that caused hallucinations of demons attacking him. When his sister Caitlin moved back in with her parents and Dawson just before her wedding, Kathleen naturally focused much of her attention on helping her daughter prepare for the big day. And it seemed to the family, Dawson was none too happy someone else was getting more attention than he was. Caitlin witnessed Dawson perpetually in a sour mood, often badgering or belittling his mother to her face. But Kathleen wasn't about to take it anymore. Now she was more willing to speak up for herself against her son, although it was obvious Dawson was still the dominant force in the relationship. During her two months at home, Dawson rarely even spoke to Caitlin, which is why she was so shocked when he called her out of the blue just to chat on the eve of Halloween. But while the phone call itself was unusual, it was nothing in comparison to what he'd done in the minutes before calling her. On October 30th, Dawson and Kathleen were alone together at the McGee residence. Caitlin was away at her church retreat. Thomas was away in China on a business trip, 
and Justin and Colin had long since moved out of the house. For nearly the past year, Dawson had been wrestling with mental illness. He was in therapy, on medication, and attempting to face his fears directly by exposing himself to terrifying imagery in the form of Halloween masks and scary movies. So when Kathleen walked into her bedroom and turned around to see Dawson standing in the doorway, wearing a mask, holding a knife, we have no way of knowing if she was immediately terrified, or if through her eyes, she was just seeing her poor son, dressed up in his usual Halloween attire, trying to overcome his demons. We'll also never know for certain what Dawson had seen through the eyes of that Halloween mask. Was he looking at his mother, a mother he'd come to deeply resent over the past several months as she began demonstrating boundaries? Or did Dawson, quite literally, believe he was staring at a demon? A demon who'd been tormenting him for the past year. A demon who he believed was hunting him. In the aftermath of Kathleen's discovery, police began piecing together all of the background on Dawson. Between his fragile mental state, his obvious animosity toward his mother, and the glaring fact he'd been the last person to see her alive. Police knew they needed to arrest him, but nobody knew where he was. The search for Dawson continued long into the night, and the longer the search continued, the farther and farther away it was possible he'd fled. But finally at 1.30 a.m. the following morning, officers spotted Dawson's vehicle and pulled him over, just three miles from his parents' home. By that time, police believed they'd found enough physical evidence at the crime scene to charge Dawson with first-degree murder. In addition, the black leather jacket Dawson was wearing at the time of his arrest was stained with blood, which DNA tests later confirmed to be Kathleen's. Dawson was immediately taken into custody, where he was interviewed by Detective Miller. And although no drugs or alcohol was found to be in Dawson's system at the time of his arrest, the brief interview with Dawson was nothing short of bizarre. Perhaps unaware that the cameras were rolling, Dawson was left alone in the interview room before detectives walked in. He looked calm, his eyes were focused in front of him, and his hands rested on his lap, waiting to be interrogated. He looked slightly nervous, but in full control of his body. But as soon as the door opened, his entire demeanor changed in an instant. He now looked thoroughly dazed and confused. His eyes began wandering aimlessly around the room, and his right hand began hovering near his face, and his fingers slowly moved uncontrollably in random directions. I'm going to talk to you about what happened to your mom. What happened to my mom? Well, you tell me. People called me and said something happened at home to mom. They were very, 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 very bad. Mm -hmm. What happened to my mom? Well, that's what I'm asking you. I, I was waiting for, for that, my brother and sister to tell me. Okay. Throughout his brief interrogation, Dawson blinked rapidly, while also seeming as if he was going to hyperventilate. In addition to these odd physical mannerisms, you can also hear Dawson struggling to speak, stuttering and repeating words, almost incoherently. 
After only being asked a few questions, Dawson asked for an attorney. Wait, did, 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 did I suppose I'm supposed to have an attorney? If you want one. Am I supposed to have an attorney? I should request an attorney. Well, that's up to you if, you, if you'd like one. But, I mean, we'd like to talk to you. Um, I suppose that you're supposed to have an attorney. I would offer that. I don't want to ask for an attorney. You want to ask for an attorney? Yeah. Okay. After his request for counsel, detectives had no choice but to end the interview and book Dawson into jail. To the untrained eye, Dawson's interrogation footage looks like a clear-cut case of a person pretending to be insane or mentally ill. The clinical term for this is malingering. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frazzani explains why this type of diagnosis is often avoided when dealing with these kinds of cases. Malingering is very, very uncommon and considered in the mental health community to be a, something that we really do not discuss or we discuss with caution because it's not very common. A lot of people who have any sort of mental health symptoms who commit a crime they may try to get out of it because they are upset, anxious, disturbed, but very few of them actually purposefully malinger, meaning they pretend they have symptoms that they do not, in order specifically just to manipulate the system and get out of something. It is more likely that Dawson was struggling with anxiety that brought him to actions that he didn't know how to control and then didn't know how to get out of. When Dawson's case went to trial, the subject of his mental health would be anything but clear-cut, as Dawson pled not guilty to first-degree murder by reason of insanity. Dawson's defense team claimed that when he attacked Kathleen, he believed he was attacking a demon, one of his hallucinations. Two separate psychiatrists for the defense testified Dawson was indeed insane at the time of the murder. However, two different psychiatrists also testified for the prosecution that Dawson was not insane. Dr. Frizzani provides background information on the assessments made by various doctors working with Dawson before attacking his mother and after. Dawson McGee was evaluated by two different psychiatrists that I'm aware of, one prior to his mother's slaying and one after. I'm basing some information on these interviews and some on notes about Dawson's behavior. Dawson was not found to have any hallucinations or delusions by either psychiatrist, despite reports of delusions, such as thinking that his mother was a demon. In the brief sessions that Dawson attended prior to the slaying with Dr. John Yarborough, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and conversion disorder. And in the evaluation ordered by the court with Dr. Kent Rogerson, Dawson was diagnosed with marijuana dependence in institutional remission, anxiety disorder with panic attacks, and psychosomatic symptomatology, as well as an adjustment disorder with anxiety and depression. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder is classified as a type of anxiety disorder which includes classic anxiety symptoms, such as feeling on edge, uncontrollable worry, restlessness. In post-traumatic stress disorder, a patient also experiences intrusive thoughts and flashbacks of trauma 
hypervigilance and fear of this particular trauma that might have occurred as a child or during a traumatic experience as an adult. I'm pointing this out because I am not aware from any case notes of any trauma that Dawson went through in his childhood or adult life other than difficulty with learning. We know that his family was very religious and that Dawson had some learning and behavioral issues, but I have not heard of any specific traumatic event or series of events, such as abuse or a major accident, which isn't to say that there aren't any, it's just a missing piece of the puzzle that is very important. Why did this psychiatrist diagnose him with post-traumatic stress disorder? What was the trauma? Here, Dr. Frazzani explains two different disorders diagnosed by two different psychiatrists when it comes to Dawson's odd movements. The first psychiatrist diagnosed him with a conversion disorder. A conversion disorder means that a person has involuntary movements, weakness, loss of balance, episodes of shaking, but with psychosomatic symptoms, which is what the second psychiatrist diagnosed Dawson with, a person experiences physical symptoms as a response to mental distress. For example, if someone is anxious and seeking emotional attention or doesn't know how to express their emotions and needs, they may complain of headaches or stomach aches. Psychosomatic symptoms are common in people suffering from depression and anxiety who do not know how to get proper treatment or even realize that they need to ask for help. It's noticeable that the first psychiatrist diagnosed Dawson with a conversion disorder after observing his Parkinson's-like presentation, whereas the court psychiatrist, after likely reviewing Dawson's past behavior and behavior during the police interview, diagnosed somatic symptoms, meaning that psychiatrist believed Dawson had physical symptoms in reaction to untreated mental health issues rather than involuntary physical symptoms. As Dawson's mental health began to decline, his marijuana use began to increase. Dr. Frasani explains how cannabis may have elevated negative feelings Dawson may have been experiencing at the time of his mother's murder. Cannabis can exacerbate psychotic symptoms, especially in a person in their 20s who's predisposed to schizophrenia. For example, a person may start to experience hallucinations or delusional thoughts over a period of months or years, usually in their early 20s, which would be enhanced if they're high or if they're regularly using marijuana. Cannabis can cause schizophrenia disorder to come on faster and be harder to treat. It is not going to actually cause the disorder. It's just that if someone is going to be developing symptoms of schizophrenia, Marijuana is going to make it a lot worse. Since psychosis was ruled out in Dawson's case, however, cannabis may not have played such a role. For someone with an anxiety disorder, especially post-traumatic stress disorder, cannabis may increase worry and paranoia and obsessive thoughts. It's possible that Dawson was anxious, angry, and felt alone, and cannabis allowed him to escape from these feelings at times, but then, on the other hand, go deeper into these thoughts and cause more anxiety and strange feelings. Ultimately, a fifth impartial expert was appointed by the court to examine Dawson, and it was his conclusion that Dawson, although mentally ill, was legally sane at the time of the murder. 
After deliberating for an entire week, the jury eventually returned a verdict that surprised the courtroom. They found Dawson guilty of second-degree murder, which meant they believed the attack on Kathleen had not been premeditated, but they also declared him to be sane at the time of the murder. The decision didn't sit well with many of the family members, as well as some of the public. If Dawson was sane, it seemed like he was getting off a bit easy with a second-degree verdict. At Dawson's sentencing, family members gave scathing statements against him. Their words were so harsh that Dawson's public defender later said it was the most bizarre sentencing hearing she'd ever been involved in. Dawson's oldest brother, Justin, read the lyrics of several songs he'd written about his brother, but his father, Thomas, summed up the feelings of the family by saying, All Kathleen ever did was give, and that Dawson would only and always take. Take and manipulate. Take and deceive. Take and subvert. Take and lie. Take and fake. Take and take. He was a predator. His mother was his prey. For Dawson... She was tireless. He required extra attention, patience, understanding, care, and she gave it. Then, as his demands grew, her capacity grew. Whatever it took to ease his pain, ease his relentlessness, ease his discomfort, she would always do. Dawson was given a sentence of 16 years to life in prison and will be eligible for parole in 2028. Dawson's actions immediately following the murder of his mother doesn't seem to be that of an insane person. It seemed very obvious that Dawson was fully aware of what he'd done and what it meant, especially by deliberately keeping his sister from looking into Kathleen's bedroom for as long as possible. The three and a half hours of errands, the made-up story about seeing Kathleen that morning, facts that ultimately may have swayed the jury into their verdict of sanity. Dawson wanted his mother all to himself, and in the end, he made sure that if he couldn't have his mother's full attention, no one could have it. At least, that's how the jury and the prosecution saw it. Dr. Frizzani provides some of her own insights as to how the combination of Dawson's mental health and changes in the home may have affected him. A young man building up anger and resentment towards his parents, especially his mother who's always been so nurturing and now threatens to set boundaries, might rebel against change. If Dawson was suffering from anxiety, especially anxiety that's in response to any sort of childhood trauma, his mother's constant care and protection would have allowed him to remain in a safety zone. Once that safety zone was threatened, he may not have known how to deal with the feelings that came up surrounding that. Therefore, Dawson resorted to trying to get attention or reassurance, or at least trying to stay in his parents' home, using these odd movements and behaviors. But he may or may not have been premeditating why he was using those behaviors. It's really unclear, and there's no way to tell but one thing that is clear is if Dawson did murder his mother, which it appears he did, he did so out of an absolute fear, anxiety, and rage. What do you believe Dawson saw that day as he was looking into his mother's eyes 
Were they the eyes of his mother or the eyes of a demon as he claimed? In either case, what cannot be diminished is how the world became less bright when Kathleen McGee was taken from it. A woman who spent her entire life pouring herself out for the benefit of others, dedicating her life to raising her children, caring for her dying siblings, and advocating fiercely for the victims of domestic abuse, undoubtedly loved by anyone who knew her. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, World's Dumbest Criminals. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants? Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre, and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madness pod and finally the closing track feel the madness is provided by the funk Oars. you can find them at the record labels website by going to golden slash g e Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause